whatever it is that brought you here, whether this is your first time here or your thousandth, we are glad for you. And I would invite you to pray with me. God of grace and mercy, God whose perfection is not a standard without error, but a standard of great love, help us to know you better, to become closer to you, to reflect you and what we do and what we say, to know when we don't, and to be honest with ourselves about trying again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, in part because I'm just a religion nerd, it's a personal interest, and in part because of professional obligation, I have spent a lot of time visiting churches and going to different worship services and hearing about churches and hearing about different worship services. And I have to say, although I was surprised by this, it is true, I've never been to one, I've never been to a single worship where I couldn't find something, something that was good there to be found, something that was of God, something that was admirable, something that taught me or changed me. There may have been churches where people were not very kind or they were a little bit nasty, but there was somehow a reflection of God's beauty and the way that they cared for their music or the order of their space. Churches where the theology was real bad, <laughs> but there was hospitality in the way that people offered food and literal care and their hand and their hugs. I've never, ever been to a service or a community where there was just nothing. There's always something, no matter how distant it is from my own understanding of church, from my own understanding of God, that I find to be taught by, to be admiring of. There are two churches where that was the hardest for me, <laughs> where I still got there in the end, but it was the most challenging. Uh, one, I was living in South Africa for a while, and I was in Cape Town, and I went to this giant uh, prosperity gospel church where most of the people who went were low income or were facing significant challenges in their life. And the whole sermon, not only did it sort of not mention Jesus once, the whole sermon was basically, if you had the right faith, all of the money will come to you. And if all of the money hasn't come to you, you don't have the right faith. And that was hard to sit through. I did not, that's the one and only church service in my life that I've ever walked out of. I was just like, nope, mm -mm, not doing this. But even then, the people there that we were surrounded in the pews by, thousands upon thousands of them, were kind and open with their stories, and there were really good humans there. And then the second one, <laughs> um, I lived in the Mississippi Delta for a little while, rural northern Mississippi, and uh, had a friend who went to a church that was in a really small town. Like the town was probably maximum 200 people in the middle of a field. Everyone who lived there, their families had lived there for many generations, knew a lot about each other, um, knew a lot about that community. And there was this one little old church that probably had, from the description, like max, like 11 to 18 people for worship, right? It's a small community. Um, and everybody knows each other and everybody's been going there forever. And beautiful music, beautiful prayer. And then the sermon starts and the pastor, you know, does a little bit of like scripture teaching, classic, and then starts to point at individual members of the congregation 
and tell them the ways in which he had seen them sin that week and what they needed to fix. <laughs> so it was basically like, Troy, I saw you in the club Saturday night. I know what you're up to. Get over it. Like, let Jesus into your heart. Move through your sin. Jeffrey, I saw you be mean to your mama on Tuesday at lunch. I know what you're doing. Like, get on board with God. Get your life right. And every single person got their own little individualized sermon about their personal sin. <laughs> um, that is not a style that I had ever seen before. <laughs> or, or one that I think in the long run is probably particularly helpful. Uh, I mean, in this community, maybe it worked for people, right? Everybody knows each other. Everybody has this long history. Um, I definitely did not want to become a member of that community. It freaked me out a little bit, had me a little bit scared. And I think, uh, I, I was thinking about that church as I read these letters that John of Patmos, John who has been exiled, John who is a representative of his faith, is writing um, through the angels, through the messengers, through the Holy Spirit to these churches in the book of Revelation. Because I think experiences like that, experiences like that church, where you may not have had that exact experience, I hope for, I hope for you that you haven't, um, but experiences where critique came as annihilation and not invitation, right? As you're wrong and because I'm right, I can see it, rather than we both have wrong and so together let's work on it. Experiences of critique like that, I think are what have led some of us to be sort of hesitant about critique in general. We get nervous about critique um, that is directed at us or at our communities of affiliation, you know, our school or our church or our neighborhood. Um, we're defensive because we have this sense that somehow pointing out things that aren't quite right or that are going wrong with us or with the things that we're a part of um, is an attack rather than an invitation to grow. Because it literally has been <laughs> for many of us. But I don't think that's what John is doing here. I think John is doing something different and something a lot more helpful and something a lot more interesting in these seven letters to the seven churches. These seven letters that are very individualized, each letter is written to a different community about different issues, right? One community, you do all of the piety stuff great, right? Like you're on top of your practices, but you've forgotten how to love. Get that back, guys. That's community number one. One of the other communities, you are filled with love, but you keep letting these false teachers in. You don't know what you believe. You don't know what you're about. With each community, he's actually practicing, I think, pretty good sort of management, like a praise sandwich technique. You know, He starts out with like, here's a really good thing about you. Here's something that I admire. Here's something that you do well, a place you found God. Here is what is awful about you. Here is what you need to change. Here is where you need to grow. And in the end, those of us who conquer the, way, the parts of us that need to grow are going to know God, and it's going to be great. And John, I think, is doing that <laughs> because he feels a sense of urgency about who we as Christians and who Christian churches need to be in the world, that we can't settle for just anything. We can't settle for simple. We can't settle for, oh yeah, I know Jesus calls me to love the poor, but like I do have a lot to do today, <laughs> right? It, that, that he has this strong sense that we are being invited by God to be a part of a world transforming and person transforming movement. And that's worth talking about. 
And it's as worth talking about the places where we fall short as it is worth talking about the places where we have done well. And one thing I know about myself, and I think it's true for you too, is that when your spiritual life is on track, when you have a rich, ongoing, good spiritual life where you are consistently praying and in conversation with God of some kind, when you are consistently um, dwelling in the scriptures or the other stories of God's people, when you are making space for centering and peace inside of yourself, one of the ways that I can tell that my spiritual life is healthy and rich is that I am the most open to the idea of growing and changing and that I need to change. Because my spiritual life is so solid, I am so convinced, I am so in touch with the reality that God loves me, that God made me, that God cares about me, that it's no longer scary or threatening <laughs> to think about the parts of me that I don't like so much. This, I think, is actually one of the hardest things for people about meditation and prayer. It definitely is for me during certain times in my life, is that you spend quiet time with yourself. And if yourself has parts that aren't your favorite, it's hard to spend quiet time with them. <laughs> unless, unless there's a richness to your connection with God, a richness to your conviction that um, there are good things that are in you that allows you to see those parts of yourself you don't like. For me, it's a lot of different things. It's the way that um, I can have endless patience and compassion for a stranger on the street, but my temper with my husband is about this long, right? Like, I don't like that about myself. That's not a good thing. <laughs> um, it's the way that uh, if I have been on a customer service call for like 45 minutes, even though I understand understand very much that it is not the fault of the person that I am talking to. It is the fault of some vice president somewhere who set policy who's never going to talk directly to me on the phone. I still get really mad and I use my like, my parents were lawyers voice and I'm like just a very sort of irritable, angry person with someone who doesn't deserve that in the middle of their day. I don't like that about myself, right? The ways in which we self-sabotage, the ways in which we mess up our relationships, the ways in which we hurt or condescend to others at work, the ways in which our lives are not examples of generosity or kindness or hospitality. All of us have that stuff. We all have that stuff. <laughs> and a, a, a healthy spiritual life is one that allows us to be in healthy relationship with that stuff, which is trying to change some of it, even if we know that some of it will never go completely away and where that stuff is not threatening to think about. Because we know that we, like all other people, are mixes of good and bad. Mixes like these letters to the churches of things to admire and things to get rid of. And that's just a part of being a human. So, so that, I think, is what we're looking for as ourselves. I think it's also what we're looking for as communities. And that's where John is really at in this letter. So he's pointing out to communities, churches, where you have gone wrong. And I want to bring up a map of these seven churches. Seven is sort of a mystical and important number for, uh, for John in general, but he also is speaking to seven specific communities. 
Um, a lot of people have never really read Revelations 2 and 3, these letters that we just read, because the rest of Revelation is filled with like <laughs> fire and sea monsters and angels. And so everyone's like, let's get to that part. Like that seems like the interesting part. And we leave out this prosaic, really interesting part. And we're going to get to the monsters. We're spending all month in Revelation, so we're going to talk about them. But it's actually important to talk about this part first because it's a really important context for what this letter is doing. It's not just a message about this extraordinary battle between good and evil that John senses at the heart of the world and at the heart of our universe. It's about real people in real time trying to figure out what it means to be Christian. And particularly, what it means to be Christian in an empire that is not. And in an empire that does not reflect the values of his form of Christianity. John um, is the one on this little island over here, Patmos, in the bottom left corner. It's probably not the same John as the Gospel of John. A lot of people name John in the Gospels. A lot of people name Mary in the Gospels. We got to keep them sorted out, right? Like, if you meet a toddler named Noah today, there's probably like six other Noahs in his kindergarten. Same with John back in the days of Jesus. Um, so, so John has been exiled to that island of Patmos for some crime against the empire, probably in the 70s and 80s AD. So it is post the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. For John, the apocalypse isn't something that's coming in the future. Like the apocalypse is happening now. His world has been destroyed. And an evil empire is in charge, right? Like the Death Star is here. That is John's experience of the world. And John wants to be in communication with other churches about how you live in that kind of environment. How do you be a Christian in that kind of environment? And so that's what a lot of these letters are about. You, some of the things you hear over and over again about what they're doing wrong. So he makes references to Balaam and to Jezebel. Those names may sound familiar to you if you read a lot of Hebrew Bible. They're not real people that these churches are encountering. They're references to forces of accommodation to the empire and of idolatry to other gods. Because Christianity is like not a powerful social force at this time in history. People don't know what a Christian is. There's like 12 of them comparatively to the millions and millions of other Romans there are. It's a small movement, but they, along with many, many other movements, movements of magicians, movements of prophesiers, all the minority religions, all the minority religions are fine if you only believe them and dangerous once they cause you to not act out the empire's ways once they cause you to not act out the empire's ways. So, so critical ways of being a part of the empire were that you participated in the civic cult, that you bought your meat at the place in town where meat was sacrificed in the names of the Roman gods. And that was a religious thing, but it was also an economic thing, that then part of the cut of all of the food that everybody in town bought went to the empire, right? Went to the government. One of the first letters we ever have talking about Christians, it's not complaining about Jesus, it's not complaining about their theology, it's complaining about the fact that they aren't like in the meat racket, right? <laughs> that because they won't buy the idol meat, they're messing up the local economy. Same thing with sexual immorality. Um, there were sexual practices at the temple that were about honoring the empire, honoring the emperor and the gods that were supposed to be a part of who he was. And Christians, once they became Christian, it wasn't just that they believed in Jesus or had a conviction in Jesus, it was that hopefully it would start changing their behavior. And the ones who got kicked out were the ones whose behavior changed them in such a way that they no longer were doing all of the stuff that their government told them they had to do 
to look like good citizens. And some of them were still doing that stuff, right? And John is kind of mad about it. <laughs> so in Theatira, what is wonderful about you are your deeds of love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So to us, far away, that sounds like it's about sex and food. And it's kind of about sex and food, but it's mostly about you have started to accommodate yourselves to the empire. You have started to accommodate yourselves <laughs> to this ruling government, and you can't be a Christian and do that. You have accommodated yourself too far. You can live in these towns. You can have your neighbors be friends. But there are ways of living that Jesus is calling us to. And if you give them up just to make nice, that's not being a Christian. It's not being a Christian. This is one of John's primary concerns in the whole of Revelation and especially in these letters is what does it mean to be a Christian and to live in a power, in an empire that does not want you to live your life with Christian values? What accommodations are okay and what are not? What are a bridge too far? And that basic question, <laughs> What does it mean to be a Christian and live in a world where the powers and the principalities are not of values that we share? That's a question I think we could definitely ask today. <laughs> that's a question that's relevant to all of us. It's one I've been thinking a lot about this week, uh, you know, reading Revelation and seeing our national conversation about this week about what it means to be a patriot. <coughs> and what symbols of attachment to the United States are required to be welcome here, and what aren't. Um, so for those of you who, who don't know, or just to give you some background, right, two years ago in 2015, um, Colin Kaepernick, a uh, football player, starts um, kneeling during the national anthem. And what's interesting to me is that uh, I don't think that he thought he was going to start a movement because he didn't announce it the first time that he did it. Um, he did it several times and then a reporter asked him like, hey Colin, what you doing? <laughs> and he said, um, I live in a country where people who look like me, people of color in general, but especially black men, aren't safe, are subject to police brutality, are subject to state violence, and I'm going to kneel during the anthem until my country isn't that kind of place. Right? Like we're not living up to who we need to be for me and for my people to be safe. And a few more people started doing it, but it was like a handful. A handful of folks started doing this kneeling during the national anthem or holding the hands of, or the shoulder of someone who is kneeling during the national anthem to specifically make this statement about police brutality and about the danger that black men were facing and black women, I would add, um, in, in the world and in this country. And then last week, our president said, use some epithets about those people um, uh, that I would consider inappropriate in any context, and then also said that they should be fired for that action. Because standing for the national anthem is how you prove that you're a part of this particular version of empire, right? This particular power. Uh, he made a, he drew a line where he said, this is how you accommodate yourself. And I think that caused last Sunday a lot of football players and a couple baseball players and a couple, a lot of women's basketball players who've kind of been doing this forever um, to ask themselves, what is more important, 
my accommodation to this power that I live in and what the power is demanding of me and what the power says I have to be to be a full citizen or the morals and values that I hold as someone who believes that I am already a full citizen, as someone who believes that I deserve to not be in fear for my life. What's more important, <laughs> my values or this accommodation? And many, many, many of them chose their values that day, despite the consequences. Colin Kaepernick doesn't have a job. Like There are real consequences to this resistance. Um, and I wonder how many of us as Christians are doing or would do the same thing. How many of us, if challenged between what we believe the gospel holds us to do and be in the world and the power that we live in, would choose the gospel? How many of us already are and how many of us already aren't? It's a moment for self-reflection, a moment of reflection for the things that we like about ourselves, but also the things that we might change. And it's that moment, not just for us as individuals, but for us as churches and communities. Because our church has been thinking a lot about racism, anti-racism, multiculturalism, and the powers that be for the last few years. Um, it's something, anti-racism was always something, Urban Village was planted about seven and a half years ago, and always something that people said would be a value of this community, right? That, would be a, that we would be a multicultural community. But I think it became clear pretty quick um, that it wasn't always what people were experiencing in this community, that it wasn't always how we were living our life, that we made mistakes at the staff level, at the culture level, um, that led to this community not being a place where all felt equal and welcome, but also not being a place where our systems were set up to do that constant reflection on how are we living up to the gospel value of anti-racism. And I do think this is like a core Jesus value that is drawing us forward in this day and in this time. And so about a year and a half ago, we contracted with Crossroads, this um, nonprofit that has been for 30 years focused specifically on anti-racism and specifically how do institutions rather than individuals become anti-racist. How do, uh, because institutions are how we do most of life in America, right? No matter how much most of us resist it, we're a part of a lot of institutions at once. And they have worked with nonprofits, corporations, um, big denominational bodies, but I believe, and they've told us, we're the first church, like local church, that asked them for this. Over the last year, we did an anti-racist audit, which is an audit of us, <laughs> right? We didn't wait for John to write us a letter, although there have been Johns along the way, I think, um, people who either left or who stayed in Urban Village who have written us some pretty pointed letters uh, or pointed emails or pointed Facebook messages saying, you aren't actually as anti-racist as you think you are. <laughs> you don't have this together. We've had some Johns along the way. But we invited ourselves to be our own John. And we set up a team of lay people from all four sites, diverse in race, in background, in perspective, and they did a bunch of surveys of you guys, so thanks for filling those out. You may or may not remember that you did that. <laughs> Interviews of our leaders, um, all kinds of analysis of where we are and what we're doing. And they have come up with an audit that we're gonna release to the church on October 15th about how we're doing on our anti-racist value, about where we've done well, but also about where we can and where we must grow if we're going to be the Christians that we claim ourselves to be, if we're going to be the community that we claim ourselves to be. 
And when that is released, and when we go over that, and I really, really encourage you to be here on the 15th to have that conversation after second worship to go over that, or then on the 22nd, there'll be another opportunity to process that audit as we try and live into it for the next year. Um, there are gonna be moments where it feels bad and awkward. Like, I just promise you that now. I guarantee it, right? That's how it's supposed to be. Um, that's how it is in my own spiritual life. Whenever I come up against the parts of myself where I haven't quite been who I wanna be, it's a little bit like touching a bruise, you know? Just like, it feels a little sensitive. <laughs> feels a little sensitive. But that is actually a signal. That feeling of awkward, that feeling of sensitive, that feeling of strange, that is a signal that you are on the right path on a good path, that you've found something worth addressing and worth thinking about further, because it means that it's a place with a lot of nerve endings, right? <laughs> and it's a place that if we address it and a place that if we are open about it and honest about it and try to change it could lead to so much health and wellness and extraordinariness for our community. So there's gonna be weird parts. There's also gonna be exciting parts. There's gonna be things that we're already working on that we wanna work on more. But I just wanna say that when this thing comes out and as we start to act on it, which is gonna take a whole other team, so if you wanna be on that, let me know. We're getting a lot of folks in it. Um, I could not be more proud to be a part of this church. I could not be more proud and more happy to be a part of a church that says, we don't wanna wait for someone to tell us that we aren't being Jesus in the world we know that we probably aren't, and we want to see what ways that we aren't so that we can fix it, and if not become perfect, which we probably won't, this is going to be a lifelong, decades-long process, we're probably going to have to do some audits every couple of years, um, that, that we are committed to becoming ever more incrementally welcoming, justice-based, and truly for all as we can. Because, because, we are so convinced that the mission of this place is important. The mission of this place is important enough that it's worth doing right instead of doing half-assed. It's worth doing with reflection and with change and with improvement, rather than saying, oh no, we've got it right, let's close our ears and never think about anything again. We think that what we do here, the community that we have here, the mission that God has given us to be evangelical and inclusive, to think about justice and to think about our personal spiritual lives, to be a real community to one another that is bound together by Jesus, but also challenged by Jesus to be better than we thought we could be, is worth it. Worth inviting, worth living into, worth having critique. The kind of critique that is healthful and leads us to better places in our lives and in our souls. So I could not be more proud of this church, and I'm so excited for October 15th, and I'm so excited for what comes after, that we will be a place that is more welcoming and justice-based for all. And I also think it's a good challenge to us <laughs> to try and do this in all the spaces of our lives, to ask ourselves as individuals, or in my small group, or at my school, or at my work, what are the things that I really love about this, about me, but also where are the places that I need some prodding, <laughs> that I need some growth? Where are the places that my values, my Jesus values have come into conflict with the powers that are organizing me? And how can I become more of a representative of the Jesus transformation of those powers than a representative of the powers themselves? We're gonna be on that journey together and I am excited for it and it will be a good one. And we will hold each other up in the times when it feels a little ouchy and we will help each other grow in the times where we don't know what to do next, but we know that something must be done. 
And John of Patmos will be with us too. And Jesus will be with us too. And God will be with us too on that journey for which I am eternally thankful. Let us go forward together. Amen.